Welcome to episode 36 of Control the Controllables. This is also our first part of our Mental Health Awareness Week. Our first guest is Noah Rubin. Noah jumped onto the scene a few years ago by winning Junior Wimbledon, coming through the qualifying. Um, a fighter by nature on the tennis court. I've seen him firsthand. He's also gone deep into ATP level tournaments and has been as high as 125 in the world. Noah's then used his platform to start bringing awareness to, to mental health himself. It's something that he's experienced and it's something that he's been working on bringing the tennis community together for a while. Um, throughout the podcast, we talk about some current affairs. You know, anyone that follows Noah knows that he has strong opinions. He articulates himself very well with those opinions. And we do get into some of those topics before talking about his mental health journey and some of the things that he's trying to do to help the sport as a whole with regards to that. It's a fantastic podcast to start the week off. Sit back and enjoy. And we'll be in touch every day this week with a, with another podcast. This, I believe, is the longest. There's two longish podcasts. The other ones are a little bit shorter, but it'll be well worth your time. Enjoy, and over to Noah Rubin. So, Noah Rubin, welcome to Control the Controllables. Thanks for coming. No, thank you for having me. No, it's, it's great to have you. Um, as, as our listeners, listeners will know, you know, this week is Mental Health Awareness Week for, for the podcast. Uh, we actually put it out there. Who would people like to, to hear from? And there was two people, and maybe you can help us get to the second person. But the first person was Noah Rubin, and we've, we've got <laughs> you on. And the second one was actually Marty Fish. Ooh, yes. Yeah, no, he's been extremely outspoken and great for mental health, actually. Yeah, no, absolutely. So it's great to have you on. For those, for those that are listening who, who don't know Noah, he's definitely becoming a more and more um, popular voice and face in, in the world of tennis. But at his, at his highest, 125 ATP, um, still, still playing very much on the tour, currently at 225 in the world. A former junior Wimbledon champion, I believe, from qualifying as well. You know, made yeah. it all the way through, and then has has gone on and, and is is doing great things for for tennis and mental health in tennis. I'm sure lots of the listeners have seen behind the racket, and and also Coffee with Cation podcast behind the racket with with Mike that you do. So it's it's great to have you on. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here and uh, see what you guys do. No, thanks again for coming on. We really, really appreciate it. Unbelievable having you on Control the Controllables. How's uh, life been during uh, these very, very strange times? Yeah, no, it's, uh, God, it's crazy. Super unsettling. I mean, again, you know, kind of what we spoke about in, in the beginning was that tennis was at the forefront of the situation, starting with Indian Wells. And, you know, I was at a Korean barbecue restaurant and Young Chung is actually at the other table. And we both look down at our phones and look at each other and we're like, is this actually happening are they canceling the tournament and from there you know it just exploded and being from new york that was definitely one of the first epicenters uh for two and a half months i didn't pick up a racket stayed at home without touching a racket for about literally two and a half months and then started to get out when things started becoming okay had some private courts over here and then um yeah and then public courts started opening up a little bit but now it's it's kind of going back to where we started it's very scary 
Um, but it was a good time for me to kind of work on behind the racket. It was one of the silver linings of this whole situation. And, but crazy, crazy, crazy to see how this all developed and where tennis is right now. And just to take you back to Indian Wells, Noah, when the announcement was made, did you agree with it at the time? What, what was the general sense from the players in Indian Wells? Yeah, the general sense. So it came out that there was one confirmed case in the Palm Springs area and um, Palm Desert area as well. And, and that was it. That's, they were super worried about having fans and this exploding. And so, yeah, I mean, I actually, you know, it was crazy at first because they don't cancel a tournament for fires. They're not going to cancel it for this, but they did. And it was actually great to see. I mean, they could have saved a lot of lives through what they did. I mean, you don't really know um, how much this could have affected people if they had, you know, 10, 15, 30, 50,000 people come to, to watch tennis together. Um, it, was, it was a crazy move on their part, but, uh, you know, great for Tommy Haas to really take the, the first step forward. And then fast forward three, four months, we're, we're starting to see crazy scenes, obviously starting in Europe. Um, we now, I mean, even for us, I guess, in Europe, looking then to America, we're starting to see all these exhibitions that are, that are taking place. Francis Tiafold's now come out as, uh, you know, contracted the virus. What's, what's your take on all of that? Yeah, it's, it's been tough. Um, you know, obviously for athletic, fit, healthy 25-year-olds, you know, you're, you're, the percentages of you actually getting severely ill are very low. My problem right now has been with fans. You know, why are we forcing that issue? Why are we having them there? Um, that only, you know, raises the percentages tenfold for players contracting something or for spreading the virus. So like you guys have battle, you know, we have battle of the Brits going on that did it very safely. There's a lot of WTA events that actually did it. I mean, I feel like WTA has been, way up you know, way way in front of the situation compared to ATP. Um so again when we're seeing obviously the Adria tour um and you know in my head regardless of what the government did it was we're fighting common sense on that one. And yeah. then again with Atlanta, you know, it's just highlighting that tennis everybody's kind of in for themselves and the quick, you know, cash grabs here and there and not really looking about the further picture of where tennis can be and how that can affect tennis coming back. And Noah, do you think that's going to have an impact now on this U.S. swing that's meant to go ahead for the lead up to the U.S. Open? It doesn't make it easier. <laughs> you know, you see this stuff and it, it can't make it easier. Obviously, um, the U.S. Open, unlike the French right now, has literally... I mean, I've worked tirelessly to make sure that they could put on any kind of event. I mean, it's still not 100%. It's, I don't even know the percentage. But, you know, we're talking about making sure that you have a healthy, uh, safe bubble where people are not leaving the bubble. You only have one hotel. You're taking to and from the courts, testing, no fans. You know, when you look at the French and there's 25 hotels that are okay and 60% and of fans are going to come. You know, you know, we're definitely fighting for a safer tournament. Um, I understand the situation's different here than it was there. But this is uh, it's a scary time, um, you know, and I understand the business route of it as well, where if USCA doesn't have the US Open, they don't have money. There is no money. So for the ecosystem of tennis, it's vital. But then you put, you put it in the pedestal and you say it's not worth human life. And that's my only problem is where do we put tennis with human life? And it seems like we've been kind of battling that line a little bit. And no, not to 
and, and you've rightly pointed out that that's the number one thing, human life, safety, absolutely number one. But if we kind of then come down to the tennis level, you at 225 in the world currently, yeah. you're pretty much on the edge of what we would now know as making a living in, on, on the ATP Tour, getting into, getting into Grand Slam qualies. What does it mean also then to tennis players like yourself? Well, actually, US Open goes ahead, but you've worked your ass off for X amount of months, but you can't play. These guys can. The rich get richer. You know, more and more points get poured into those guys. It, it, there's also an effect there. And I guess to have you as, as the tennis player, because I know you wear many hats, but you as the tennis player, how does that make you feel? Yeah, I mean, it sucks. I mean, we worked, you know, our whole life to make sure that we get as many opportunities at the Grand Slam level as possible, especially in New York. You know, I, that's my backyard. I'm 20 minutes away from the grounds. I've, I've seen it my whole life. So to, not, to have a small chance of, of not playing, to have a large chance of not playing, it, it does suck. Do I think they've done a very good job of trying to make up for it in any way possible with putting on challengers and giving us first round prize money? They understand and they see that it's tough. They, you know, underestimated the expenses it was going to take to make another safe bubble for qualifiers. Yeah. But that being said, I mean, this goes way past. I mean, I hate talking about the open. I hate talking about the French open because the bigger picture of tennis is put on the side of all of these conversations. And I, spoke about this earlier on where I was hoping that we use this time like we see in history books use a time like this to either evolve or yeah. crumble and I think we're really starting to figure out that tennis I like to call it a lost cause I mean we just see there's too many moving parts there's too many yeah. egos there's too many people looking out for themselves where we're talking about the U.S. Open if that goes on that's the that's almost like the worst case scenario like that's the bare minimum of what we have to have happen you know, if it doesn't, you know, tennis is in a really bad spot. So, you know, I'm, I'm concerned. And now that I'm seeing it, I'm, I have a pretty good understanding that, um, you know, there's really no place to go with the current system of tennis. Just, again, it's too global of a sport, too many moving parts to evolve. And that's highlighted during this pandemic right now. I know it's probably difficult to answer this question now on the spot, but what would be the things that you would like to see uh, come into place to make the game better in your eyes? Yeah, I mean, there's there's two things that I always and, and I still want to happen is, you know, you look at it and as a as global, as international as it is, I think it's one of the least fan-friendly and least TV-friendly sports out there. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously ESPN is going to have Wimbledon and the US Open, whatever else, because, you know, those are the events. But for the rest of us, you know, for them to say, hey, you have to close off, you know, two hours or eight hours and then you can put whatever else it's just not doable. You know, we don't have the revenue these other sports have. And then for fan friendliness, it's not exciting. It's not bringing enough of the next generation into the sport. Um, and then on top of that, during this pandemic, it's too global. So I think we have to have more of this geographical feel to it, which still can have the slams at the top and possibly Masters 1000s as well. But nobody, no offense, nobody really cares about tournaments below that. And I've had my best tournament at ATP 500s in DC and stuff like that. I don't even know who wins those tournaments, you know? So it's, it's we're getting to this point where we have to experiment with everything below a thousand, whether that means more team events, whether that's just getting fans into it and then still allowing those top, top tournaments that do well, regardless of the situation, do what they do well. So I think we just, we haven't experimented. I, I you know, more Toglu is, 
possibly the only one that has. And it, it's sad. It's saddening to see because this was the perfect time. I mean, everybody was on their couch. Everybody, you know, could have picked up the phone. And if we can't get something done now, we can, you know, there's, there's never a chance to. So I give you, I'm the commissioner of the ATP. Maybe not, but let's say I am for a minute. You, you have three experiments to run over the next 12 months. To, and your, your goal, your aim is, is to make tennis more accessible for, for more people demographically, you know, all of those different things and, and get the buzz. What do you yeah. do? What three things? Yeah, the three things I would say is a few more team events. Yeah. Uh, very tough, very tricky for people, unless fanatics, which I've dealt with fanatics in the past few weeks, unless fanatics, um, you know, they don't get behind a person. It's very tough to get behind a person. You want to get behind a team, you get that atmosphere. So team events, geographical locations. So you, you're mostly moving around your country. I stick within the US, maybe North America, um, as well as, um, and then having those bigger, and, and, and I'm sorry, shorter format. I think that would be the final one I would have is getting this point where it's two out of three sets. I'm, I'm bordering the 10 point tiebreaker. I don't know how I fully feel about the 10 point tiebreaker yet, but definitely no add points. I think we need a sudden death feel for sure in tennis at certain levels. And I think those are the three we need just to lively it up, have jerseys, experiment on those smaller, smaller side, but it's, it's get it in a smaller geographical location, quicker events. And I think we'll, you know, we'll see a lot of new younger kids getting involved. Did you see the Did you see the interviews that they were doing at Battle of the Brits? Did you, I don't know if you uh, watched any of it. Not so, all of it. No. So what they what they did actually, and I'm not sure that the players would necessarily agree to this in a, in a normal tournament, but they they spoke to the players at change of ends. You know, they put the head headpiece on, um, which was fascinating. You know, just very basic, but as you would know, tennis speak. Um, but they also did it then with the coaches at least once a set. And, and you also could hear what the coaches were saying to the player. And just as, a, as an insight, it was, it was fascinating. You know, it really was just to, just to really start to kind of pull people in. I, I guess that would also be something that we'd love to see maybe. No, that would be amazing. Honestly, with Mike and I, we've been looking at the rule book to see if during a doubles match, I can experiment with a Mike, if that was allowed or not, if yeah. he could pick up the feedback because... You know, I'm looking at some of these exhibitions in the U.S., and I'm a huge, I'm a, te- you know, freak since I was born. I can't watch them. I think they're so boring. Yeah, you know, yeah. putting on, and I'm like, how have we not experimented? I know, like you guys and Mortogolo miking it up. I mean, that's needed. I want to hear Opelka, you know, talk about how you know he gained 30 pounds and now he's hitting winners again and acing. I just want to see that. You want to feel that um, individuality of the player, and I think you know, how we haven't used these exhibitions to experiment and how it's just been the same old stuff. I mean, I watched Demon R and Duhar, which is insanely high level tennis. Yeah. I was bored. I mean, nothing, nothing's happening. There's not enough going on to capture us and capture our attention. And it, again, it, it's sad to see that we're not using this time to fully experiment. Yeah, no, absolutely. No, there was one, actually, there was one example that comes to my mind. I mean, I, I coached Lloyd Glassball for about 10 years, so it, it, it sticks with me. And, and I'm good friends with Dan Evans, but they were playing doubles together and they were 4-1 down first set. And, and Dan basically laid into Lloyd. And, and you could hear it, you know, and you could hear it all. And, you know, I know Lloyd's 
it can be a bit timid and I know their relationship very well. And, you know, Lloyd said a couple of things back, you know, but what Dan was actually doing, he laid into him in a way that he was trying to get him going. And they ended up winning the set and winning the match from 4-1. And you could see that that was a really defining moment in that. So even like speaking to Lloyd after the match, Lloyd didn't like that he'd maybe been talked to like that on, <laughs> on, on television, you know. However, it, it was quite defining in what happened in the match. And, and that, that left me wanting more as a fan, for sure. Yeah, I mean, think about it. You look at other sports and you can get a feel of that. You can see where Scotty Pippen goes to Michael Jordan and says, this is what we have to be doing right now. And, you know, we only get that in doubles and usually after the fact. I mean, you want to feel that during, you want to see the emotion, you want to see people growing together, even if it's just coach and player. Um, we definitely need more of that raw emotion because, again, in an, in the, excuse me, in an individual sport like tennis, you know, you need the person's flair to come out. And I think tennis has kind of shut that down a little bit too much recently. It's, a, it's, a, it's amazing uh, that you talk about tennis that way. And I suppose as we speak about it together here, I suppose culture has changed a lot and the mindset of people has changed a lot around the world. I'm from Ireland and I know the big tournament of the year for, for the Irish here is Wimbledon, obviously. And as soon as Wimbledon comes on, every, uh, you know, tennis is in the forefront of everybody's mind. And, and, I, and I suppose me growing up, it would have been always about Wimbledon. There's big excitement around the game. And even with that five-set format, um, and I, I think you're right, uh, any other events outside of that, for, certainly for the Irish, uh, they, don't, they don't know uh, many other tournaments. And it would be great to be able to create more of a fan base with that type of excitement like they do get from, for us, it's for Wimbledon. Um, and if it's through changing formats, like you're saying, um, then the game has to, to look at itself to, to maybe make that change. Me personally, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big tennis fan. I'm an old school guy. I, I, I love looking at those big five-set matches. I could sit back in the chair and look at it all day. But I suppose for your average Joe Soap, it's different. Yeah, it's tough. It gets very tricky. And I think, you know, when I was looking at it, you know, I think we do quarters and on five sets of a slam, something like that, you know, where – you know, a lot of these first round matches, which, you know, maybe that loses me out of it. I, you know, I don't know if I'll get to the quarters of a slam. I'm hoping to. Um, but I, I had a five-set match in the first round of a slam, and I know how incredible. I mean, I le that memory sticks with me forever. And, what, and that was just a war for me. And, um, yeah. But I think, think we need to switch it up a little bit at certain times. Again, experiment below it. Get, get it a little bit quicker, a little bit fast moving. I mean, even during the Open, which is kind of a band-aid for Americans in terms of tennis popularity, when tennis is, you know, even going on during the U.S. Open, they still have Mets games. I have to go to a bar and the Mets game is on. I'm just like, hey, guys, you know, the largest tournament of the year is going on right now. If you don't mind switching that on real quick, that would be great. <laughs> and they're like, well, this is game 142 of the Mets. I'm like – Please, please. <laughs> so, like, again, we have to build this um, dramatic feel to it. We have to get the teams involved, I think. Um, you know, the, the other thing is when I'm talking to tennis traditionalists, you know, and especially with five-set match, there's more than enough times I go to slams and people don't want to talk about this. Guys are tanking sets. Guys are tanking points, games, sets. It happens all the time. You know, if they're up two sets, they'll tank the third if they're down early break. It happens. It's a long match. And, you know, I'm one to turn on the TV at the first set, turn it off in the second, go back in the fifth, whatever it is, you're not capturing enough of it. I think 
it will only highlight how great tennis is if guys are working every single point. Um, it's tough, but I think slams yeah. stay as they are for now. Let's just experiment on the lower end. That's good. And what, what about world team, world team tennis? I know when I was in college, I was, I'm an LSU boy. Mm. And, and we, we actually got invited by Billie Jean King up to Stanford to trial that. So that was back in 2001, 2002. And, and it was an amazing format. You know, it was, I remember getting very exciting and, you know, playing that. How, how has that captured the imagination? Because obviously that's been trialed now for a few years. I've been running. It has. It has. I think it's a little bit too quick at times, to be honest. Okay. I think the format does take away a bit from tennis as a whole, mm -hmm. um, but it's great. I mean, I, I played World Team Tennis a few times, and I said this myself as well as, you know, I understand that it's not life or death like, you know, the tennis tour may be, but I, I don't remember seeing that many smiling faces on a tennis court before. I yeah. mean, regardless of winning or losing, I mean, there was just an incredible fun competition involved in it. That we again we, we don't have in tennis we, we we need jerseys i want people to be wearing a ruben jersey i want people you know to now know ruben because he's on the team with federer and now they know me and and just getting behind that whole situation um world team tennis has done a really great job with that i just think um you know we need something at times that has to just get a little bit bigger that's willing to expand a little bit deeper um because right now they kind of are second to the ATP. You want to make it too big so ATP brings us in and says, and WTA brings us in and says, we need you, we'll work with, we'll work with you guys and give you points yeah. so you actually mean something, you know? Yeah, because if you go, I guess just thinking about it now, in terms of, in terms of what draws fans in as well, is it is that raw emotion, you know, and, and it does, does an exhibition feel really bring it in whereas I guess and what brings the raw emotion and, and I guess history does you know I think the fact that you know Roger Federer is it's not about money anymore <laughs> you know it's about him knowing that you know these guys have all been before him you know he's about to play one of the most epic matches of all time you know it kind of comes to kind of this whole climax which which I think that's a really difficult thing to to recreate, you know, and, and, and I guess the, 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 the counter argument is we go a bit too quick, we go a bit too fluffy, a bit mm -hmm. too rah, 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 and, and, and actually does, does that really engage people at the same rate? So how do we make it quicker but keep the actual true emotion of it really meaning something? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we've built this sport and, and it's great. The Masters 1000s are great and I hope to keep that. But if we keep the slams as the pinnacle, as yeah. what you're working towards, I don't think you lose that. Um, yeah. You know, I get, I understand there's a lot of great Masters, uh, I mean, ATP 500s, I've played them. But you kind of lose that raw emotion when I'm playing Geneva second round against Fognini and I have 50 people watching me. There's, yeah. almost, there's, there's only so much raw emotion that could be there when I have 50 people watching me. So, you know, it gets tough. You know, you can only argue that to a certain point. Yeah. And then after the slams and then Rome and Monte Carlo and Indian Wells, after those tournaments, it's time to experiment. And if you put enough on the line, which is money and pride and then the ability to reach this Grand Slam goal, it's going to be there. Again, yeah. it's going to be there. Uh, so you have these team events and people really want to play. And let's say you have people finally playing for their state or their city or town. 
And that's amazing. I mean, that's something that people dream of. And it's, you don't always get that feeling as just being an American and playing in a slam. You don't always get that unless you win a tournament. But if you're playing for a team and you're, and I'm playing in New York, that's a really incredible feeling with still having the peak be the Grand Slams. Yeah. It, it yeah good. brings us on to the money bit. So again, I did a little, a little research before. Noah Rubin has made $750,000 in his career. Fantastic. So you must be, you must be driving a Lamborghini. You must be living, living the high life. Yeah, I've, I've won for the weekend and one for the weekdays. Uh, you know, I don't like to take so, those out. But, uh, yeah. what, what's that reality? I guess, you know, I, I, I know I've, I've been around the sport a long time, but for, for those listening and looking at that, it, it seems like you're making a great living. You know, so, but the reality is the money isn't spread around enough and that is, isn't enough money. What, give, give the listeners the reality of a 10-year career of, of making about a hundred thousand dollars a year. Yeah. So $45,000 of that immediately was never in my possession was when I reached uh, a wild card first round us open before school. So I wasn't eligible to take money. So that was just quick. So there's 40 grand gone. Um, but yeah, after that, I mean, you're talking, you know, coaching expenses, a physio here and there, and my expenses are looking anywhere from 50 to $60,000 a year. Um, and then you're paying somebody's salary plus expenses on top of that, you know? Yeah. I mean, in the past year and a half, I've saved up some money because I I didn't have a coach. You know, I went to Wimbledon with my girlfriend, had a little bit of help from USTA here, but you know, that was the only time I started to save up money. So I've also been fortunate to make, you know, for somebody around my ranking that's moved from 120 to 220 range, I've done fairly well at Grand Slams, which the money is tenfold there. So I've qualified wild cards here and there, which has helped a lot. But again, I mean, you know, even when I reached my career high at 120 in the world with having, you know, I, I pocketed probably $50,000, you know, something like that after paying coaches and everything else. So, you know, when I talk to a lot of my friends, I have some friends in the MLS in, in the US, you know, they might only get 80 grand a year, yeah, yeah. 75,000 but they don't even register that I have to pay for a coach. They're like, wait, we just get one of those, you know, you know, so those things are just taken for granted and hotel is paid for all of that where I'm doing that. I'm trying to find the cheapest, but I don't want to go too, too cheap. I want to be comfortable and, and all this stuff that goes into it. And you look at $750,000 and yeah, I've probably bought too many dumb shit here and there, but uh, you know, it's still pocketing after all of that over the few years is, you know, a very small amount of that money, which is really sad. I mean, it's tough. And then I've tried to invest it back into my career at times. And other times I took chances and went on my own and yeah, yeah. no rhyme or reason for anything. And there's no good or bad way to do it, but it's, it's very tricky. The rich can definitely get richer in this sport. Yeah, no, absolutely. And what's break even? It's talked about a lot in our sport. What's break even ranking on? You might not be able to comment on WTA, but ATP. ATP break even is is this with or without a coach i guess i mean i, I think I, I think that's obviously a massive part of it isn't it so i think i think we have to talk about it with a coach because if coach you know, break even i mean you're talking around 150 175 in the world i mean that's that's like breaking even i mean if you're you know, obviously you hope you could share a coach with somebody else, you know, maybe that lowers the expenses. You know, I know that's not always doable, 
it's a lot of money. You're talking anywhere from 1500 to $2,500 a week salary kind of thing with expenses on top of that. And that salary could be even more. And that's a lot of money. Um, so yeah, we're 150 in the world, break even. All coaches worth it. Yes, I mean, 100%. If you're looking to get to the top of your sport, I do think there is some kind of coaching you need uh, because you, you, no matter what, you can't be subjective enough to coach yourself. Even yeah. me being as confident or arrogant, whatever term you want to use as I am at times, yeah, I still need somebody in my corner making sure that I'm doing what I have to be doing. Um, I've had some of my best tournaments without coaches. Yeah. Um, that's not saying that I still don't have help at home. Um, I think it's important to figure out who you are as a player first, what you're looking for, and do the foundation before getting in certain coaches. But again, it's, it's a very personal thing, and it's a, it's a tremendous financial investment. Yeah. And Noah, you're, you're, a, you're a junior Wimbledon champion as well. So, you, you know, you, you've won Grand Slams in the juniors. That transition into senior tennis, how has that been for you? Um, has that been... The way you've planned it out, uh, has it been different? Yeah, I mean, it was uh, fairly smooth. I did my first year of college, finished that, went to pros, final a couple futures. Still to this day, have never won a future, six finals. And then qualified for a challenger and won a challenger. And that challenger got me the wild card into Australian Open, which won, I won my first round against Benoit Pair. So that happened very quickly. Since I left school, literally, I moved up 100 spots every month for like 10 months. I went from 2000 in the world to 160. And then I, and then I had my first injury. And that was something I, you know, I, I just rolled my ankle. I was out for five months and I did not know how much pressure that was going to put me under to not only get my ranking back to where it was, to get my playing ability, to get to my mental back to where it was. And then I wasn't this up and coming player anymore. I was a tour player. Yeah. So now I, didn't have I had all this pressure of now playing matches and people gunning for me at challenger level because I'm now I'm seeded I'm one of the top seeds all this pressure and I wasn't playing that well lost my momentum and it was just like that everything changed and it was very tough now with a lot of uphill battles more injuries throughout my career some good moments of course here and there where I moved from 270 back to 180 250 back to 120 but I couldn't keep the consistency um Yep. I mean, the best highlighting, the best thing is every time I've won a challenger, I've won four of them. I have lost first round the next tournament every time. So I've, I've had a lot of trouble continuing momentum, which is a must in tennis. That is the only thing you have to do in tennis is any momentum you have, you have to continue it because yep. it's usually not one tournament unless it's a slam. You need at the challenger level, you need two, three tournaments and one ATP event. So it's been a very long uphill battle and only, it wasn't only until recently, which I've come to terms with trying to be happy no matter where my ranking is. No, it's very good. And I think it's probably the best time now to move into, you know, obviously we've talked about a lot of current affairs and again, to the listeners, I know we're in mental health awareness week, but you don't get Noah Rubin on your podcast and, you, and not get his opinions on those things, you know? And I think that's one thing that I've, I've got a lot of admiration for you, Noah, is you, you speak your mind, you, you get your opinions out there, and I think you do it in a very articulate way, you know, which, which then fuels discussion, and then, you know, discussion can fuel change, you know? And I think 
without people like yourself in, in the tennis world, nothing will change. It'll be status quo, you know? So, so that was great to get that. But now I guess you're, you've started touching on it a little bit, I guess, you know, you, you junior grand slam champion. I remember you at that time. And like I said, on the email, when we set this up, I don't, I don't know how well you remember me, but right. I remember we had quite a bit of banter, you know, the U S against UK, Great Britain at Eastbourne, you know, and, and on grass at that time, you were, you were struggling. I remember in terms of, you know, the big hitters, you know, Josh Ward Hibbert, who I was coaching at the time. Yeah. And, and 12 months later, you won Wimbledon on grass, which was phenomenal, you know, you know, fair play to you on that. When, can you give us your mental health story really and how, how maybe you've got, got yourself into a place where, where you didn't feel like you were, were as strong mentally as you wanted to be and then what you did about it from there? Yeah, I mean, you know, I started from an early age. I dealt with a lot. I mean, my parents were divorced and it led to a lot of traumas early on. And, you know, it wasn't a typical divorce. There was a lot of issues that went on there. Um, and, and also through my, you know, tennis was an outlet for me yeah. as well as I knew that I was a fighter. You know, we knew from an early age, I was 6'4", sadly. We knew that very early on. Yeah. So I knew that, you know, my speed plus my mental game, that was going to be it. I was going to be fighting regardless of, if there was a tornado outside, if it was 110 degrees, 10 degrees, I was going to be fighting. So that was me as a person. Um, and then somewhere along the way in the pros, it just got to be a very big struggle for me to find that motivation at times. Um, I had the saying that tennis makes, has a way of making you feel very irrelevant. You know, no matter what you do, it's never enough. You know, it's never enough. I got to 120 in the world and I'm like, shoot, I'm a, I'm a, in what I do, I'm 120th best at that. And nobody cares. No. Not one person cares about that. Um, you know, my grandfather gets a few newspaper clippings, but that's about it, you know. So lacking the motivation and finding that was a huge struggle. And for somebody that was known to be a fighter, known to come back from 5-1 down, match point down, and going to make it a living nightmare for you, I started giving up easy matches. I started, you know, not putting full efforts here and there. And it was less about giving full effort. I just didn't have it in me. Um, and I got to a point where it was my longest losing streak. It was six matches in a row. And I was in not too far from where you are right now. And um, somehow at 200-ish in the world, I it was yeah, near 200. I was in qualies of yeah. the challenger there. And um, I played a guy who was 180 in the world. He didn't get into Maine. I lost at 10 p.m. at night with four people watching me. It was freezing cold in the wind, losing first round qualities of a challenger. And I'm like, it w I mean, it was four months before that that I just won a challenger and now I'm losing first round qualifying. Yeah. Like, what is this? Like, what does it all mean? What am I doing here? What am I doing wrong? What is this all worth it? Because I thought I was grinding in practice, putting in the hours. Yeah. And here I am crying alone. Um, in Spain and Marbella. And I'm just like, wow, we have to figure something else. So, um, you know, that was one of two lowest points and I actually managed to fight my way back. I went to the futures levels for a second. Then I won a challenger, to, you know, a month later, got me into the French open. That's when I got my career high. And then it wasn't until then where I got to my career high and said, things weren't changing that much. Mm -hmm. I lost in a challenger after beating John Isner in ATP 500 lost in a challenger quarters. And I'm like, I'm back to where I started. 
and that's where I kind of figured out that things I have to find happiness. I have to put happiness in a pedestal. That's kind of my saying. And I had to figure out a way to be okay with how things were going and just be happy with playing. And tennis was making it very difficult. As a lot of players know, tennis makes it very difficult. So it was Wimbledon before last year, Wimbledon, where I literally practiced with like 16 year old kids for an hour a day. It wasn't working out, was barely hitting. And I qualified for Wimbledon in some of the worst shape I've been in. And I'm like, wow, like maybe I can actually, you know, do something different, move back home to New York from Florida, enjoy my life, do what I feel like I need to do and still be a good tennis player. And it really took a long time. It took four years of my professional career to get to this point, And I'm still learning every day. Yeah. But it's putting happiness in a place where if that's there, if I'm willing to compete, I'm giving myself a pretty good chance every match. No, no, very good. Uh, there's, there's a couple of things for me on that. And, and for the listeners, I guess, uh, we, a, a high majority of listeners are in Europe. To be playing a tennis match, you've been unlucky with the weather, if it was cold and windy, because the weather tends to be beautiful in Marbella. Mm-hmm. He is this guy, 200 in the world, incredible tennis player, playing in Marbella in a, in a, in a tennis tournament for a profession. It's, it's quite hard for people to understand, well, what, what, what's his deal? Do you know what I mean? What's, but it's, it's, it's not as simple as that, you know? And this, this is where the whole mental health thing is so important because we never know what people are feeling, you know, and, and, and those things. How, what would your advice be in terms of, let's say you were coaching yourself or you were somebody who was around you maybe in, a, in the formative years, do you think there's any things that could have been delivered better to you to help give you the understanding that tennis is a losing sport? You know, you know, you losing six matches. Well, that's very normal. You know? Right. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the, the largest thing and it's something I did well, but you have to bring it to another level for, you know, what I started to figure out, you know, what you just called as a losing sport. And you have to find what is a win for you. Yeah. You know, for me is, you know, I love traveling, but I have to do it on my time. I don't love going from place to place, country, yeah. continent to continent. And just, it's exhausting to me. Yeah. I do love travel and I love going to museums and finding out about the cultures and everything. But so, you know, do that on my time. And if there's tournaments where I really don't feel ready for traveling to, don't travel, you know, just don't do it. So it's about figuring out you know, whoever your player is, or if it's you as a person, figuring out what really, what it means to you to be happy, what success means to you and yeah. do that. So if it means, you know, you're playing within the U S for most of the year, do that. If that's going to make you happy, you know, yeah. screw everything else. You know, who cares if you play the same players over and over, who, if that's going to make you happy and give you the, your best chance of success, don't listen to other people. And I think in tennis, especially because, you feel so irrelevant. You're always looking for outside sources. What, what is that guy doing? And we always forget that it's such a personal thing. Yeah. What works for one guy may not work for me. What works for Federer, for the greatest player of all time, you know, what he does may not work for me. And you have yeah. to understand that. You have to find who you are as a person, what makes you happy and successful, and continually do that regardless of outside information. And Noah, just, just on that as well, and 
So I, I wouldn't have played to the level of you are Dan, but I, I did travel a little bit on the on the futures tour when I was playing, and it's a lonely sport. You, you're out there for a long time, and um, you know when you lose, there's a lot of downtime for the rest of that week. Um, would, would you just for again for the listeners and people listening in, what would be? Would you travel with a team? Would you travel on your own a lot? What would be kind of percentage of the time that you would travel? Uh, on your own versus, let's say, with a coach, let's say? Yeah, I mean, I'm actually fairly good on my own. With that being said, there are more than a few times where I've gotten lonely throughout my tennis career. Um, obviously, a lot of it is based on financials and who you can bring along. But, you know, I, I know a lot of people have gotten backlash and they're like, why does this entourage, why does he have his friend with him? And I'm like, because he needs a friend. You know, yeah. it's so tough. And especially, yeah. even if you're very close with your competitors, it's not the same. No matter how close you are, there's still 1% that you're like, they're my competitor. There's 1% that I'm not going to disclose to them. I'm not going to open up to them about because they're your competitor. And I'm trying to break that, but it's going to take a long time to overcome those boundaries. So why these guys travel with friends is because they need them. They need to be who they are as people. You know, I wish I can travel with a non-tennis friend or even a tennis friend who's not a professional who I could just hit with and have fun and joke around and have dinner because it's all that downtime that puts you in the best mm. state of mind to play tennis. So especially at a futures level where it's so competitive and it's do or die and you feel lonely and, and it's just, and this is where the snowball effect happens. If you can travel with one other person and even like pool your money together and prize earnings, I've talked to people about this. It makes it a more team atmosphere. It's needed, especially at the lower level. I'd absolutely agree with you on that. And, um, I, I, and I guess the more you're out there and if you're not winning, it, it, it can be a very, very difficult place. And, you, you, you know, you, you're wanting to win, obviously, as much as you can. And I think tennis players put a lot of pressure on themselves when they're out there. Um, but I, I, I can definitely see that. And the, the loneliness can be a big, uh, big, big part of the game that maybe upcoming players don't get just yet until they're out there on the tour. Yeah, I mean, once you get in the snowball effect, you have loneliness, so you're not playing your best, and then you don't have money, and then you can't travel with somebody, and it just keeps going, keeps going, keeps going, and you get stuck in this, and that's where a lot of these true mental health issues come, and loneliness turns to depression, and depression turns to alcohol abuse, and possibly substance abuse as well, and it's scary, and, you know, it's, you know, ATP are coming out with things, and this is stuff I've spoken to them for over a year now, um, but we need to do more. Uh, you know, it's really sad what's happening in all of sports in the world and specifically tennis. Very good. And let's be real. It's a high percentage of tennis players. A high percentage of tennis players that, that, that are going through exactly what you've described, you know, and I think that's, I think, where the behind the racket that you, that you set up a couple of years, I think it's, it's why it's really grabbed people because, you know, something as simple. I remember, when, I remember when I first saw it, I thought, so good. Because when you, and I, and I use the example of this pandemic. So I own an international tennis academy. Pandemic, I mean, it couldn't have hit me in any more directions. You know, screw you, you can't have anyone travel. Screw you, you can't have the courts open. You know, it, you know there was, there was so many different places that came. And, and I think I would have got into a darker place mentally on it if I didn't know that everyone else was going through the same thing. You know, and I, and I think that that normalized effect 
is is massive for us as human beings to to be able to connect with someone and say, well, hey, dude, we're going through the same thing. You know, this is this is shit, but you you know what I'm talking about. You're feeling it, and and the first few that I saw of you behind the racket, I was like, this is it's so good because it's it's allowing people now to connect with stories and normalize how they feel. You know, and I think I think if we go back. 10, 15 years, maybe even longer when I was on the tour, it wasn't normal and it wasn't allowed. And it was like, get on with it. You know, what you're talking about, what you do, you know, and, 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 and I think it's great. So was that the inspiration behind, behind setting that up? And I'd love to then hear a bit more about that or the listeners to hear a bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, it kind of started one with bringing in new excitement to the world of tennis. Like I spoke about, tough to get behind a player, especially when you don't know who the player is, you know, so you have to know deeper who they are. But, you know, my motto behind the rack and my slogan is everyone has a story. We all deal with this one way or another. And I think that's so tough for people to grasp at times, but mental health affects everybody involved. And, and you need to hear from all types of athletes. You don't, you can't just hear from the top. And what Murray has gone through is incredible. And what he's overcome is incredible. But when he gets into his, you know, his own private pool with three physios, it's tough to relate. Not saying that we don't need those stories because we very well do and they're incredibly inspirational, but we need a larger picture. We need to see everybody dealing with it in all levels, in all sports, at every level. So you know, that was kind of my backing was giving players a safe space to share their platform. One, I'm a player like them, so their guard is down a little bit. Yeah. And I give them final say so they feel like they're almost the ones writing it out, which they're not specifically, but they feel like they're the ones doing it. And that's, that's very important to me. I want them this to be the first step in discussing it. I want their minds to think about it. I mean, you know, funny enough, people see me, players see me now and they're like, I'm not ready yet. I'm like, what are you talking about? They're like, oh, I, don't, I don't have my story. I don't know fully how I want to go with it. But like, and it's funny because I don't even ask them about it, but they're thinking about it and just getting that thought going and that conversation going maybe now they speak to one other person about their story and they're opening up and this is what we need. So um, tennis is obviously a perfect jumping off platform. I do think I'm, I'll go into other sports in the future, yep. but tennis is my heart and it affects tennis players on an even higher percentage basis because of what the sport brings. And I just needed to do it. I didn't know if it was going to be successful or not. I just needed to give players an opportunity and a place to write down what the demons are in their head and to know that it's okay. Like I've gone through that. Other people have, we sympathize. We're here for you. You know, we're not judging you for it. And that was very important to me. Well, very good. Your, your, the process again, for those listening, and, and I suppose that's our motivation as well for, for these podcasts, especially during this week, or if one person listening listens to this and it hits home and then goes and talks to somebody, then this, this podcast is a, is a success. When you were in, in that low point, what was your process to get yourself back up and running and, and, and basically building your mental health back up? It, what, did you go through I mean, anything? Yeah, I mean, what I'm figuring, figuring out right now is, you know, I never fully got back up. You know, I didn't have enough healthy outlets. I didn't deal with the problems I at hand. I didn't deal with my emotions properly until recently. And yeah. I never fully got back up. So maybe I slapped on a Band-Aid over, you know, a knife wound, basically, 
yeah. slapped on a Band-Aid and then I went in the pool one day and the Band-Aid came off and here I am gushing blood again. So, you know, I think I did what I could and I did what I thought I could do in that time. But a lot of times it wasn't enough because, you know, I had, and, and I'm fortunate, I'm fortunate enough to have family that cares. It has a loving girlfriend, but there's only so much they can understand. There's only so much they can be there. So I need, I needed more outlets, which I have now, um, which is why I'm such a big proponent of people speaking and talking and just making this conversation, you know, normal. I want people just to be like, Hey, you know, just to a friend, like, Hey, you know, I've been dealing with this. It's been tough. Like, you know, have you dealt with that at all? Like, why is that not a thing? And it's because it just hasn't been normalized. And that's been kind of what I've been, you know, reaching towards. And you doing the podcasts on it and you doing, you know, talk, does that help you personally as well? And this is something that, you know, I've alluded to it a few times, but not too often through the interviews, even specifically yep. with other players, which is about them yep. in therapy sessions for myself. Yeah, yeah. I learn, you know, not only do I relate to what they're doing, I'm also opening up to them so they feel comfortable. I'm also, you know, feeling this level of, wow, like that's something I never thought about or they have a different mentality that I haven't thought about. And through these podcasts and interviews, I mean, it's helped me tremendously. So, yeah. I mean, I've gotten all this hate mail from, you know, tennis fanatics, which everybody does, whether it's betters or Djokovic fanatics or whoever you're going to get on, um, you know, say that, oh, just, you know, don't worry about it behind the racket. It's awful for you. You're going to be a thousand in the world. It's not good for your tennis. You're wasting time. Yeah. It's been incredible for my tennis. You know, it's, it's gotten me to a place where, which I fully disagree with, you know, this is a kind of an old school thought and some people still agree is, you know, you only have one plan. You have plan A, you just have tennis. And I think in a sport that already puts so much pressure on you, alleviate that pressure by having the outlet of, a, of another passion yeah. and behind the racket has given me this therapeutic passion yeah. to get me to a place of happiness and it's it's done more for me than I could have ever wanted and, and to see it affecting other people has been remarkable it's really it's it's, it's really really great that you're doing it uh, no and I think um, if I was a player still and I was able to listen to you and, and some of these podcasts, I know as a player that would have certainly helped me um, on my travels, being on tour, because there's an awful lot of time you're out there and you feel like a failure. You feel like, you know, okay, from the outset, people looking in that you're doing really well. Or, but you, you, like I said earlier on, you put a lot of pressure on yourself as a tennis player. You put your own kind of pressures each day um, and when you're not hitting them them targets you, you can come out feeling like you said like very much like a, a failure and uh, now being on the other side of things and as a coach um, I can I can look at the other side of things and look at it as tennis as a privilege and an unbelievable um, opportunity to be able to travel the world and go to all these amazing places and competing and meet different people uh, across the world and friends like we have here on this podcast right now but um, I think it's amazing what you're doing. So it's, uh, it's great for people and, and young pros coming up to be able to listen to these podcasts and take some nuggets away. No, thank you. I mean, I, obviously, I want to change the current system that we have right now. But I'm not naive. I mean, I think there's a long way to go. Even with I'm, I'm working on creating a competitive league to the ATP right now. But there's a long way to go. So you have to be okay with the current system. And I think even if you're 800 in the world, it can be worth your investment. You can make it work. You can enjoy. You can get so much out of it. I mean, 
tennis brings you to some incredible places, meeting some of the most influential and affluential people and brands in the world, you just have to look at it differently. And that comes to perspective and, and using your time wisely. Um, but I think we just have to get away from this antiquated thinking of what tennis is and it's just winning grand slams. There is more to it, even in this current system. I'm a, I'm a massive believer. And it's the first thing I say to any player or parent that comes to our academy. I have an equation I use, which is talent. And then I don't say it again. But the reason I say it is I want parents to know that that is one of the reasons certain people have won 25 grand slams, you know, um, plus, plus an environment and an opportunity, plus unconditional effort and, and a want always equals success. Always. And, and, I, and I am yet to see it not. Now, I would also say with that, success is relative. And that's, and, and, and that's the bit that then is very important. But, you know, so for us, we've actually got a, we've got a, a ten, nine, ten-year-old starting with us who we're going to give a, a full scholarship to. Because what I see of this kid <clears throat> is he, he has the want, the desire, the unconditional effort his parents do, but he's not in the correct environment or having the correct opportunities. So that's then, that's the one I really feel bad on and I want to provide that. You know, whereas probably the most common one we see is the players have the environment, they have the opportunity, but they don't have the desire and the unconditional effort. And that's, it might go wrong in that bit. But I'm yet to see, and I'm 40 years old, I am yet to see someone who has the right opportunities and the right environment and absolutely gives their best not become a success. And, mm-hmm. and, and I just think for tennis players... If, they could, if I could just give a little bit of gone through that system, being in that bad place, and just get that into their brains at 16, you know, just throw yourself at it. Give your absolute best every day. Do, do what you can to get better, to put it out there. I absolutely promise you, you will be a success. No, I love that. And again, it's, it's the idea of, of what does success mean? We have to change this around, you know. I'm actually, I started, you know, teaching a few lessons. And one of them is an 11-year-old kid who has a lot of potential. Um, but he's already worried about wins, losses already. And, and I'm trying to kind of bang that out of him. I mean, this understanding that, you know, regardless of what happens, if you're getting better every day, let's say the best you get is high D1 tennis in a school. I mean, you, the experience you'll gain from tennis just through that process, I mean, is is – Incomparable, uncomparable to anything else in the world. And, and I think is just teaching parents, because it starts from that, teaching parents to teach the kids that, you know, regardless, this will be an incredible journey that you will not be able to get anywhere else. And, you know, that's tough. You know, you know when they ask me all the time, you know, does, does my kid have a chance of breaking 200? I'm like, kid doesn't even know how to tie his shoes yet. I don't know if he has, you know, enough chance to be top 200 years old. Like, you know, what did, what did you eat, Noah, when you were eight years old? I was like, I don't know, chicken wings and a burger? Like, I don't know what you want from me. Like, and that's why it's getting this down and, and harping it into their, their mind of saying, hey, don't know what's going to happen. Your kid has potential. We're going to work hard. He wants it. Let's just see what happens. It's going to be an, an incredible journey regardless. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and on that point, if you had kids, would you want them to play tennis? They are definitely going to pick up a racket, um, but I would full-heartedly tell them what they're getting into to play tennis. I mean, but I remember, you know, in my childhood when I was 
missing high school because I was got my career hank a career high ranking of six in the world, or I played La Petitas when I was thirteen, and and kids are in middle. I had an amazing childhood. I wouldn't change it for a thing, not a single thing. Do I think that a lot of it has to change? And do I think, you know, some of the pro circuit is not as fun as it could be? And it could be a lot more fun. It could be smiling a lot more. Yes, but as, as you know, a junior career, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty incredible. And I, I owe a lot to my family and everybody that, you know, worked so hard to make that happen, to make sure I could travel when we didn't have that much money. But, um, yeah, I'm still looking at soccer, though. Still looking at a little football for him. Well, what the secret is, Noah. I, I've got the secret. I I I, I fell okay. upon it. It's it's to just be crap enough. Yeah, it's my just be crap enough theory. So I was just crap enough that I was 60 in the world juniors. So I had to go. I went to college. Yeah, I was just crap enough in college that I stayed for four and a half years and lived a more normal life. And then I played on the pro tour for two and a half, three years. And I was just crap enough that I didn't go for much longer than two and a half, three years. So, so then I, I genuinely, my reflection on it is I never quite fell into the dark hole. <laughs> you know, I, I think the dark hole is you can get there where you are, aren't quite at the top, but you're good enough that it's kind of there. It's just, you, you're just about there. So, so that's, my, that's my secret that I worked out throughout my years, not intentionally, I may add. <laughs> no, I like that. I mean, that's kind of the mentality you want is this idea that this is what I have right now. I'm going to do all these other passions that I enjoy. And if it doesn't seem to be working out, let's move on. If I don't want it as bad as I did a year ago, let's move on. It, it's uh, just crap enough. You may want to trademark that. Um, yeah. It's pretty, pretty good. <laughs> but, uh, I think that's yeah. a new podcast, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> Like maybe the three of us get together. When Noah gets sick of Mike, you know, he might get sick of Mike after a while. Maybe we get together and that's what it is. And Noah, you've, you've been a gem, mate, and, and I don't want to keep you too much longer. But I'd love to know what's, what's next for you, what's next for the, you know, the fight to help mental, mental health in sport. Um, yeah, what, what's, what, we got, what we got coming up and how can we help you? Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, first, I, you know, just for everybody, I'm, I'm still training. I'm training like a professional tennis player. That's still happening. Um, with that being said, I am working on trying to create another league that can compete with the ATP right now. Because, again, uh, talking and through this pandemic with everybody, I see that, you know, it's a little bit of a lost cause. I want to see what I can do. But with Behind the Racket, there's a lot. I mean, I'm working on mental health tennis camps. I'm working on a documentary. I'm working on a book, actually. I'm working on a lot of things um, right now that are going to come out and just every day expanding upon Behind the Racket. But, you know, I have a clothing line coming out as well. So we're moving in a lot of different directions because we want to make it a community. You know, this is not Noah Rubin. This is a Behind the Racket community where you can be a part of in so many different ways and feel like you are doing good just, just by being a part of it, just by listening and, and educating yourself and maybe talking about it. So we are trying to do what tennis does very, very poorly, which is cross-pollinate and get it in a lot of different fields and, and see where we are in you know, a few months and years from now because you know, this behind-the-racket idea is only just about a year and a half years old right now. So to think where it could be in another year with all the people I add to my team and the new passion I have for these new projects, it's, I'm really excited. Oh, fantastic. And, and to give you the, the, the final word for our listeners, if you were to give 
our listeners one bit of advice to, to help someone that is maybe going through some mental health problems themselves or, or to, to, if you don't know, what would your advice be to around people? Yeah. You know, I, I use this line um, and it goes a little deeper, putting happiness on a pedestal and to simplify that I literally sat down and humbled myself and wrote down what I loved and what I hated about my life at that second. Yep. I looked at what I hated. I was like, if you don't change one thing every week, you are failing yourself. Yep. And that's what I did. I didn't like being in Florida. I changed that. I moved to New York. And these are tough things to do, oh, yeah. but it's tougher to live with. And if you don't make these large jumps, which are very simple, simple ideas, tough to execute, but simple ideas, you're going to find yourself in these holes. And it took me a while but then one day I sat down, I wrote down a piece of paper, what I liked and didn't like about my life. And I changed them. And you just have to do that. Very good. Very good. Um, it's been amazing. Uh, Noah, once again, a really, really big thank you for, for the time uh, this evening and the insight to your journey. Um, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. So thanks again, man. No, thank you so much, guys, for having me. No, it's great to have you. And first and foremost, Good luck with your, your playing career. You're a young pup still. You've got plenty of you've got plenty of playing and plenty of success to have on the court. So the best of luck on that, and and also with all the fantastic things that you're doing, Noah. So thank you very much for your time and and stay in touch. Yeah, be safe, guys. Okay. Thank you. Massive thank you to Noah Rubin. Absolutely class from Noah that was. Um, so so insightful. And and as I said at the start of the podcast, he articulates himself so well, such strong opinions. Um, I know that he's going to continue going from strength to strength on the tennis court, but also he's going to be someone that's going to be on our screens, on our Twitter feeds for, for a long time to come because you know he is creating a real platform for change in the sport. Whether you agree with what he says, don't agree with what he says, you can't help but admire the way that he's gone about it and and putting his time to, to good use. Um, and we wish him all the very best. A massive thank you to you guys. Hopefully it was a good start to the Mental Health Awareness Week for you guys. Um, tomorrow we have Fran Lewis, who Fran is a fantastic young coach from Wales works with some of the brightest European prospects and has done for years and she speaks beautifully and very openly about about the the different struggles that she's had and I think a lot of a lot of us will be able to relate to that as coaches uh, but also as parents as well so I urge everyone to give it a listen uh, please reach out let us know what you think of the podcasts um, any requests any recommendations we're all ears. We're here to keep doing this for, for you guys and uh, for as long as we possibly can. And we hope that this is going to bring a lot of awareness and it's going to make a difference in, in people's lives. So thank you. And my name is Dan Kiernan. My co-host, John McGann. We are Control the Controllables. <laughs>